Well, if you have your Bibles, friends, please turn with me this evening to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to be taking a look at verses 1 through 8 in particular this evening as we continue in our study on the golden chain, our brief golden chain of salvation series. And of course, studying this ordo salutis, this order of salvation, preaching through it as we are, it helps us to make sense of all the biblical data. As I mentioned this morning, Scripture gives us a lot of teaching, a lot of teaching on different aspects of our salvation. One of the ways to think about it is to think of salvation as that big umbrella term. But there's lots of different subcategories. Again, just like multiple facets on the same diamond. It's one gem. It's one gemstone, and it's beautiful and splendid and brilliant. But each angle where you turn the gem, you see a different perspective on its brilliance every time you look at it. Salvation is like that. Many times when we use the word salvation, at least in casual conversation, I think we tend to mean it in the sense of justification. That is, I was once, an enmi- I was once at enmity with God, I was once unrighteous, I was his enemy, and now I am in a right standing with God on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am right with him, I am saved and belong to him. And that's fine, but strictly speaking, salvation encompasses many other things beyond just the blessing and benefit of justification. Justification is one part, but so is sanctification, so is adoption, and so forth. Salvation is a much broader term than we tend to use it, and so the ordo salutis helps us to organize the teachings of Scripture and get some orderly sense out of what the Bible teaches regarding our great salvation, as the Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews puts it. And so, in addition to helping us make sense of things, it also gives, I think, I'm persuaded, great assurance, and it fills us with great awe at the God of our salvation when we take these things in. The Ordo helps us to see how sure God's promises are and how utterly secure we are in the grasp of his hand. As the Lord Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And so we call it the golden chain, as Paul in Romans 8 outlines some of those various aspects or dimensions of our salvation. Each link in the chain inexorably inevitably leads to the next. And so tonight we come to the fourth link in the chain, if you will, in our series. The fourth link, and we're going to be thinking about regeneration, the new birth, being born again. So far we've looked at union with Christ, again that great context of the blessings of Christ and the great context in which all the blessings and benefits of our salvation are enjoyed. And we looked at election, and this morning we looked at effectual calling. And so tonight, logically, In that order, we're thinking about regeneration. Regeneration is sometimes called in Scripture the new birth or being born again. And, you know, being born again is one of those phrases that has been, in some instances, unfortunately appropriated from Scripture or maybe misappropriated and hijacked by the culture. Uh, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I hear the phrase born again, at least as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, I would immediately associate that phrase with a politician who's trying to manipulate my loyalties in order to gain my vote. And that politician may not be born again at all, but he uses that language because it resonates, or it tends to resonate with conservative Christians. And I'm sure you can think of other examples as well. It's one of the downsides of living in a post-Christian culture. Perfectly biblical phrases and perfectly good biblical terms get misused and misapplied. 
And that's precisely where we want to be careful. Because born again is a good and biblical term. And just because some greasy health and wealth peddling televangelist or some greasy politician is misappropriating that phrase doesn't mean that we should give it up merely because they have co-opted it. The phrase born again has endured cultural misappropriation in our day, and so it may have distorted our understanding. But if we just toss it out the window because of the negative cultural connotations, I dare say that we may rob our souls of the comfort and the challenge that it offers us when it's understood in its proper scriptural parameters. And so what I want to do is to read our text of scripture from John chapter 3, and then say a couple things by way of introduction before we look more closely at John chapter 3 in this famous account of the exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. So let's look to the text, shall we? We'll read God's word, and then we'll pray and ask for his blessing. So John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, we'll read down through verse 8. This is God's holy word. Hear it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, brothers and sisters? Father, we believe your word. And we believe it is life-giving and life-sustaining. As we study it together tonight, would you give us again your spirit, we pray. Humbly asking that we would be nourished by it and strengthened by it and that we would be emboldened to believe it and even to plead its promises before your throne. Grant us, we pray, your Spirit's ministry and illumination tonight. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, as we consider the glorious doctrine of regeneration tonight, let me say a few things by way of preface before we begin to look at the text in earnest. Uh, If you were with us a a few weeks ago, as I mentioned, or rather, as we started looking through uh, Union with Christ and uh, the doctrine of election, and then if you were here with us this morning and we spoke about the doctrine of effectual calling, as you were thinking about effectual calling, you may have thought at first, well, he's talking about the doctrine of regeneration. He's talking about the new birth. And and that would be a reasonable conclusion to make. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, our own Westminster Confession of Faith there in chapter 10, it actually describes the new birth Within It's subsumed within that chapter, chapter 10 of the confession, entitled Effectual Calling. Regeneration stands in the closest possible relation to the doctrine of effectual calling. In fact, we might say that effectual calling deals with the same subject as regeneration. Right? Effectual calling 
describes the action, the means as to how God grants a new heart to a sinner. And then regeneration describes what happens when that new heart is granted. The how and then the what. The how is the drawing, the, the effective means by which one is drawn, and then the what is the result. The new birth is what results when that word is effectively proclaimed, bringing life and light where there once was death and darkness. It's almost like two sides of the same coin, regeneration on the one side, effectual calling on the other. Two vantage points to the same event. This morning we used that wonderful illustration of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And we said effectual calling is like the summons of Jesus Christ at Lazarus' tomb. And he says in John 11, Lazarus, come out! And at the call of Jesus, Lazarus comes forth. Well, if you want to think of effectual calling as Jesus standing outside the tomb, summoning Lazarus to come out, the doctrine of regeneration takes us inside the tomb. It takes us to the lifeless body of Lazarus. And we see that at the word of the Savior, at the breath of his mouth, at the summons of the king, in place of a dead, still heart. Suddenly that heart begins to beat again. And there is life. Regeneration stands in the absolutely closest connection to effectual calling. So it's a distinction there. But we don't want to make an overly harsh division line between the two things. They are distinct and at the same time wedded. The second thing that we have to say by way of preface is that we cannot understand regeneration. We cannot understand the new birth and its utter necessity until we understand the condition of the human heart apart from God's renewing work and apart from the regenerating ministry of the Spirit of Christ. Uh, You may have heard this phrase many, many, many times over the course of your life. And if you've never heard it before, well, then welcome. I'll introduce you to it. The good news doesn't make any sense apart from the bad news. Have you heard that before? The good news makes absolutely no sense apart from the bad news. The good news doesn't seem good at all until we rightly understand the horror of our reality, of the bad news. And so the imperative of Jesus, as he speaks there in John chapter 3, when he speaks to Nicodemus, ye must be born again, one might retort with, okay, why? Well, if you like, you can flip back to, or flip forward rather, to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment. It's one that we've been studying over the weeks and months together since we've been here over the course of the summer. It's one that many of you are so familiar with and have likely memorized, but just for way of illustration, As we continue to get our heads around this, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You remember what Paul says there? He answers the question exactly why. Jesus says, you must be born again. Why? The Apostle Paul says, I'll tell you why. Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What was our condition apart from grace? Paul says we were dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. He says that we followed the course of the world And the devil, Satan himself. That's the pattern that we followed. We imitated the pattern of the world and the prince of the power of the air. He says that we are sons of disobedience. 
that's a common Hebrew idiom, that is that we are characterized as one who is disobedient, following, well, if sons follow a father, then following the arch-disobedient one, even Satan himself, as children of wrath, that is the one who is our father, even Satan, Paul says. The passions of, the, of our flesh, he says, those are the things that ruled us, those are the things that steered our course and directed us in our impulses. We were enslaved to our desires, and thus we were children of wrath. Notice, as Paul lays out our condition apart from Christ, we do not become children of wrath incrementally, as if we, as if we start out innocent, but then just develop bad habits along the way, and those things compile and and, and compound along the way, and those bad habits morally soil us, and they become ingrained in us. No, it's not that you start out with a clean slate and just slowly accrue dirt and sin and muck along the way. No, he says that we are by nature, by nature, children of wrath, right from the outset, right from the starting point. Uh, yesterday in the, at the men's uh, prayer breakfast, we were discussing the Psalms and some of our favorite Psalms, and uh, one person mentioned that Psalm 51 was amongst their favorite Psalms. It's one of my favorite Psalms as well. And if you know Psalm 51, you know the doctrine that's taught there. And Paul here in Ephesians 2 is merely echoing the doctrine that's taught by David in Psalm 51, verse 5. You remember what he says? Behold, says David, I was brought forth in iniquity, and I was conceived in sin. Right from day one. Right from the moment of conception was I in sin on account of my father Adam, that federal head. And Paul says there in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, there's no one who's exempt. It is a universal problem. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Every single man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever lived. Sin is the great and terrible equalizer, isn't it? Isn't it awful? It lays everyone bare and it lays everyone on precisely the same level playing field. It's a universal problem. Everybody wants to be equal, right? It's the great modern American value. Just not like this, right? Everybody wants to be equal. Not everybody wants to be equally awful and condemned and hellbound. Sin has slain us and we are powerless, says the Apostle Paul, totally unable to come to God or turn from sin. By nature, children of wrath, and so is absolutely everybody else, save only the Lord Jesus. And if you still have your Bibles open at Ephesians 2, you might scan down at verse 12, and Paul just keeps piling it on. He keeps piling it on, the, the horrendous condition of our predicament, the horrendous reality of our predicament. He pulls no punches. He puts it incontestably bluntly. How heinous is our predicament? Verse 12, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If one is a slave to sin, and if one is an object of God's wrath and a child of wrath, there is absolutely no comfort whatsoever to be found. We are by nature, what does Paul say? Without God and without hope, dead enslaved and powerless. Sorry, this is not your positive and encouraging K-Love radio moment in the morning. It is horrifying. It is horrifying, our spiritual reality. 
That is the bad news. And it is hard to hear, I grant you that. But friends, unless we rightly grasp the badness of the bad news, unless we rightly grasp the bad news of our predicament, we will never rightly understand the goodness and the sweetness and the beauty of the good news of regeneration. One commentator put it like this. When we do understand our natural corruption and our depravity and our bondage and spiritual death, the doctrine of regeneration in its pristine biblical clarity and balance becomes unspeakably precious. It becomes worship-inspiring and faith-promoting. It becomes Christ-exalting and grace-magnifying and holiness-inducing. Close quote. If you'll dwell with me a while on Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and we see there, as Paul describes our situation, and we see the unrelenting, merciless darkness of our condition, of our natural condition, and we see that in Adam, in our native-born natural condition and status, if we see that, that there is not one single solitary pinprick of hope, not a one, you see that in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Then turning and reading over verses 4, or verse 4, should bowl you over with sheer wonder. Dead. What do dead men do? Dead men do nothing. Dead men choose nothing. Dead men act nothing. Dead men can do nothing. They're dead, slain, lifeless, dead, slaves, children of wrath, Christless, churchless, expelled from the covenant, hopeless and godless. He describes their situation. And then verse 2, like a trumpet's herald, like an angelic trumpet resounding from the skies. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, we could, we could stop right there, couldn't we, and lift our voices and sing for joy at that verse alone for hours on end. At that thought alone, we could fill the hours with praises. Every sentence, every phrase, every word in those three verses is just fuel for praise, isn't it? But God, we were lost and he intervened, being rich in mercy, mercy enough to meet and to match and to, and to stare down and to crush our hopeless situation, to crush our hopelessness and death and his life-giving ransom. By grace, we've been rescued and set free and made alive. We've been put right, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, and all of it by grace. Free and sovereign. Grace that is unsought. Grace that is undesired. Grace that is undeserved. Boundless grace. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who, like me, his praise should sing And so, my friends, if doctrine is for doxology, if the teachings of Scripture and the doctrines of grace are ultimately fuel for praise, kindling a fire of worship within us, if doctrine is for doxology, then regeneration is like pouring out a bucket of kerosene on that kindled fire. It fuels praise and it amplifies it to the nth degree. But what is regeneration? 
What is it and why ought it to fuel our praise? How does it magnify the joy in our hearts towards our saving God? What is regeneration? How does it happen? How does one become a new creature? Well, in the few minutes that we have remaining as we look at this text tonight, let's look to that classic text in John chapter 3. Having set the scene, if you will, of the badness of our situation from Ephesians chapter 2, let's look now to John chapter 3 more closely as Jesus explains to Nicodemus the necessity of the new birth. You remember the context, I trust. It's a familiar story. Nicodemus, a rabbi in the school of the Pharisees, a respected teacher in Israel, one who certainly knows his Bible, one who certainly knows his doctrine and theology and knows his Old Testament. Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night, John says. And that's not a throwaway line. That should clue you in to his spiritual condition. John's very deliberate when he mentions night there. Remember when Judas went out to do his rotten deed. What does John say? And it was night. And it was night. John is very deliberate with his imagery of darkness and light. And very often when John employs that language, that analogy, that metaphor of darkness, it's meant to be an analogy or a metaphor for the spiritual condition. Nicodemus isn't just sneaking off to meet with Jesus for fear of his colleague's judgment. Nicodemus is at a crisis point, spiritually speaking. And he begins there in verse 2. You see what he says? Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now perhaps as Nicodemus says that, he's offering the proper customary honors that, that one would in that cultural context that may be the appropriate, polite, honorific way of addressing a visiting rabbi. It may be that he's inflating the language here and he's trying to stroke Jesus' ego a little bit and get on his good side. Hard to tell. But no matter Nicodemus's motive, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. Verse 3. Truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so four things for us to see here from our passage tonight. Four things regarding the doctrine of regeneration or the doctrine of the new birth. And the first thing is the new birth is entirely necessary. The new birth is entirely necessary. We've talked about this a little bit already as we've examined Ephesians 2 in conjunction with uh, John chapter 3. But quite simply, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To borrow our Lord's language from Matthew chapter 22, there is no room at the wedding feast for any who are not dressed in the wedding garments. Matthew 22, verses 12 through 13, he says that. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. One man put it like this. Those who enter the kingdom, God's kingdom, have natures that belong there. They are made children of the kingdom. They are born again. Close quote. It's almost as if we were launched into outer space. If we were launched into outer space in our current and present condition, we wouldn't last long in that environment, would we? Our natures are not suited for that environment. That's why astronauts have to wear the equipment that they do in order to survive and be kept alive out in that environment. Our natures, by nature, are not suited for that environment. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 22, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, and plenty of other places throughout Scripture make clear that in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must have natures that are suited to the environment. And apart from God's intervening grace, 
Our natures are not as present by nature suited for such an environment. One needs the new birth in order to be suited to that environment. The new birth is entirely, entirely necessary for us to dwell there. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this. Jesus tells Nicodemus that the new birth is entirely one-sided. So first, it's entirely necessary, but secondly, it's entirely one-sided. If you're a theological nerd like me, you might know that the term there, the theological term, is called monergism. From the Greek mono, meaning one, and ergo, meaning work. One work, or work alone, the work of one. That's what monergism means. There's only one active agent in the work of the new birth. In verse 3, when Jesus says, one must be born again, the imagery that Jesus uses is very deliberate. It's a passage that's so familiar to us that we often gloss over it sort of nonchalantly. Ye must be born again. Yeah, okay. It's meant to shock your senses and to drive home the reality of your own inability. You must do this thing, human, mortal, sinner. You must do this thing, otherwise you have no hope. Okay, now go do it. Okay, be born. How do I do that exactly? (laughs) You can't birth yourself. You cannot will yourself to be born. The new birth that the Lord Jesus describes here is entirely parallel with our first birth being brought into this world. Mother births the baby. Babies do not birth themselves. Babies are acted upon. Mother and father will them into existence, creating new life. Babies are born. Babies are passive. Mama is active. Mothers, you know, very active. Mothers do the birthing. So it is in the new birth, brothers and sisters. We do not give birth to ourselves. We are acted upon, both in our biological birth and in our spiritual birth. We are passive. We are acted upon. Ephesians 2, verse 1 puts it this way. Remember, we were what in our trespasses and sins? Dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead men don't act. They they don't do much anything at all, much less be born. You see the absurdity of the picture that the apostle is painting, which simply serves to reinforce the point. How utterly helpless we are. Not only can we not birth ourselves, worse than that, we're dead. We're the utter opposite of being in a position to be born. The the most unborn condition you could possibly be in. Dead. Deader than dead. Not merely dead. Not mostly dead. Not relatively dead. Utterly and entirely dead. Now Nicodemus likely believed that because he was Jewish, and because he was a Pharisee, because of his biology, because of his heritage, because of his pedigree, that his place was more or less guaranteed in the kingdom of God. But you see the Lord Jesus here so effectively putting the lie to that kind of assessment, to that line of thinking. Oh, Nicodemus, it's not spiritual performance. It's not theological acumen. It's not virtue. It's not earthly genealogy. None of it. Only the new birth will secure your entrance. Only the new birth will make one fit to enter the kingdom of God. And because it is a kind of of birth, we are passive recipients of God's life-giving grace. But Nicodemus doesn't understand, does he? This is an intelligent man, right? This This is not a simpleton. This man is a national level theological intellect. He's a teacher of Israel. This is an ancient world, world world-renowned seminary professor, if you like. This is a brilliant man. 
Nicodemus realizes the notion of entering his mother's womb a second time to be born again is absurd. And he's hung up on this idea. And the reason that there's confusion is that Jesus is using language that's open to interpretations. There is some ambiguity built into Jesus' language. The word again there in Greek is anothen, and that word can mean again, or that word can mean from above. And depending on which English translation you're using, it might get rendered differently. Some English translations say born again. Some English translations say born from above. Both are legitimate based on the Greek word behind it. Nicodemus assumes that Jesus means it in the first definition, be born again. And he's hung up on the absurdity of a man re-entering his mother's womb to be born a second time. But Jesus seems to mean the second option, born from above, born heavenward, if you like. That is, a new spiritual birth. Verse 5, you see it there, John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water... And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Being born of water may point to natural birth. There's some scholarly debate on this. I won't bore you with all the details. Scholars are divided on what exactly John means by when he says of water. Is he referring to the primordial waters of creation when the spirit hovered over the face of the deep? Is he referring to various other things? I think, for my money, it's most likely reference to our natural birth, not unlike when we say a mother's water breaks when she's preparing to give birth. One must be born of water, which must then be followed by being born of the spirit. That is spiritual regeneration. Natural birth results in natural life. And so for there to be spiritual life, one must be born from above. So that's the second thing. First, that the new birth is entirely necessary. Second, that the new birth is entirely one-sided. But then thirdly, the third thing that Jesus teaches about the new birth, the new birth is exclusively the ministry of the Spirit. Exclusively the ministry of the Spirit. Exclusive in the sense that there's only one person who can do it. And it's not you. And it's not me. It cannot be manufactured. It cannot be produced by any mere mortal. It is solely the supernatural gift of the Spirit of God. One commentator put it like this. We are not born again even by faith. Rather, we have faith because we are born again. Like the first signs of life in a newborn baby is that first gasp and wail that signals its entry into the world. So faith, trusting faith, clinging and grasping to Christ by faith, is the first act of a new believing heart, a newborn heart, close quote. Later on in John chapter 6, as Dr. Wilborn has been preaching through that gospel with, you, with, uh, through that gospel with us, you may remember Jesus said, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me, draw him. No one can come to me except it is granted to him by the Father. If you wanted, I wanted to take another look at our confession of faith again this evening, same place as we did this morning. Back of your hymnals, page 854, chapter 10 of our confession. If you want to turn there, we're going to look at section 2 tonight. Our confession so helpfully summarizes the teaching of Scripture around these important doctrines. We read section 1 this morning. Tonight I wanted to look at section 2 ever so briefly. Remember how I said folks will lump together effectual calling and regeneration under one heading, and that's exactly what the Westminster Confession of Faith does, and that's okay. But in this section, in section two of this chapter, 
on effectual calling, it speaks a little more precisely about what happens in regeneration. You see it there in section 2. The effectual call, or this effectual call, is of God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man, who was altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. In other words, no one comes to faith in Christ unless there is first a work of God, his Spirit, through the Word, generating new life. Only when that newborn is alive and its lungs filled with air will we hear that first cry coming from its mouth. Only when dead sinners, when a dead sinner's heart has been brought to life by God will he then cry out in faith to God. Logically, one must precede the first. You must have that new birth and then cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, I trust in you. Lord Jesus, I love you. However you want to phrase it, however simply and sincerely. First the baby lives, then the baby cries. First the new life, regenerated life is granted, and then faith is exercised. So, the new birth is entirely necessary. The new birth is entirely one-sided. The new birth is exclusively the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then fourthly and finally, the new birth entails new life. The new birth entails a new life or a new manner of living, if I can put it that way. You see how Jesus puts it there in John 3, that analogy in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Friends, the new birth is mysterious. No question about it. And you cannot control it, and I cannot control it, any more than you can control the wind. But also, like the wind, even though it can't be controlled, it can be detected, right? You can't control the wind, but you know when it's about. When the wind is blowing, there is evidence. It makes the tree branches sway. It blows the leaves on the grass, etc. So it is with the new birth. It can be detected. It gives evidence of its existence. Let me put it very bluntly. Those who are born again are different. Are different. You cannot be born again and still look like the old you. To be born again, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, means that we are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. There's a decisive break with the old life. Now please don't misunderstand me. We're not saying that we are now sinless in this life. That's not what we're saying at all. I like how one man put it. Like Lazarus, when he came out of the tomb, he was alive, yet still wearing the grave cloths. Alive, yet still wearing the grave cloths. But to be born again is nevertheless to have our hearts of stone taken away and to have hearts of flesh put within us, as scripture says. It may not mean sinless perfection in this life. In fact, it won't until we get to glory. I assure you of that. But it does mean that we have the law of God inscribed upon those new hearts by the Spirit of God, those new hearts that he's given us, which crave what God loves and incline us to obey his will. John, the same apostle, later on in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, you know it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now that's straightforward. To be born again, brothers and sisters, is to be different. It is to be changed. And in an age of moral indifference, even in the church, it's frightening how often we see this, even in purportedly Christian churches, when, when calls to pursue holiness, when, there, when summons to have confrontations with our sin, when those sorts of exhortations are met with a shrug of indifference or a meh, this is a point we need to insist on in our day. To be sure, we wrestle with remaining corruption, to be sure. We truly, we will not attain sinless perfection in this life until we reach glory. But nevertheless, we wrestle We struggle with sin. We don't just accept it and become complacent with its presence in our lives. New birth means new hearts. And new hearts means new affections. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, does that describe you? Do you have new appetites? Do you have new desires? Do you have new longings to live for the honor and glory of God? Do you have a new despising of your sin? Not just the sin in your neighbor. Not just the sin in the person sitting down the pew from you. No, do you have a newfound hatred and despising for your sin? Your sin. The new birth entails real, fundamental, inside-out change. One pastor noted very poignantly that every revival in the history of the church, every genuine revival, that is, everyone has featured a recovery of the doctrine of regeneration. You see, when folks, again, grasp the notion that there's nothing that we can do to obtain the new birth. And yet the one thing that we absolutely must have is the new birth. When that doctrine of regeneration was apprehended, the Lord was pleased to grant a harvest. So what do we do? Well, it shatters us, doesn't it, of any sort of self-confidence or self-reliance understanding this doctrine. And it casts us entirely on the mercy of a sovereign God. And as that desperate helplessness is realized, as sinners cry out to God, to a God who alone can give new life, he is pleased, as his word says, he is pleased to be faithful to his own promises, to rend the heavens and come down and grant us that very thing. Friends, how we need to pray. How we need to pray for a revival, a genuine biblical revival, not mere emotionalism and not mere excitement and not mere temporary passing infatuation, but genuine spirit-wrought revival and a cherishing in the church of the doctrine of regeneration and how we must pray that God would indeed rend the heavens. Oh, let us pray and pray and pray that God would indeed come and that he would break the chains and set the prisoners free, that he'd take away hearts of stone and grant hearts of flesh. May the Lord give us grace and a burden of prayer to plead with him for the miracle of the new birth and a burden of prayer to plead with him for all of those who need him so. Praise God for his word to us tonight. Praise him for it. Shall we all pray together? Father, we do praise you that even as we thought about this morning, salvation belongs to you, O Lord, and you alone give the new birth, and you take the spiritually dead and you breathe life into them. What a wondrous thing this is. And it drives us to bow before you in praise. And as we do, we plead for those whom we love who need that new birth. O Lord, call them to yourself. 
And like Lazarus, may they come out of that tomb alive unto you. And may it be that all glory would redound unto Christ as you seal your word unto our hearts this night. Amen.